Thank you, worship team. Kids, as you saw from the slide, you are dismissed if they haven't departed already on us. They probably have. Well, before we uh, dive into this morning's message, uh, let's just take a moment to pray again together. Yes, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we worship you. We pause in your presence. And Lord, even as many of us have a heavy heart this morning as we we grieve for people we know and love, as we think of a seven-year-old fighting for their life, Lord, our, our hearts break. And Lord, as our hearts break, we can only imagine yours. As you, as the loving Heavenly Father, look over your creation and see the pain and the brokenness. Lord, what a beautiful promise we just sang that you never slumber or sleep. Lord, that nothing happens that you don't see. And so, Lord, it's with that that we just make this declaration of faith. Lord, even in our pain and even in all the questions we would have, Lord, even all those serious doubts about how could you let things like this happen and Lord, all of those doubts and all of those questions and yet together with our faith in you being almighty God, Lord, we just pray help us in that. Help us to acknowledge that tension and yet Holy Spirit, would you minister to everyone's heart here today. And Lord, I pray for those who are here today who are struggling in their own pain and they may feel like, wow, now I can't say anything about mine considering what we've heard today. But Lord, I pray that they would know too that you deeply care for whatever they're facing right now, whatever they're going through, that it matters to you too. So I just pray, Holy Spirit, would you just fall upon each one of those hearts and bring your comfort and bring your presence and let them know how much you love them. Oh Lord God, help us as a church family to be for each other, to stand with each other, to love each other, to care for each other to truly be spiritual family. So Spirit, fill us with that power to truly be that. We are dependent on you. So as we continue this service and as we talk about discipleship and how you want to build your church, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would be our teacher. Use your word in our lives today. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, thank you, Julie, for so thoughtfully thinking through your worship songs today. I know most of you probably don't think about that. I do as a pastor and a former worship pastor. But we're talking about discipleship today and so many of those songs talked about us being learners and followers and disciples of Jesus. And then it's as if the Lord also knew that we needed songs of comfort today. So just bless all of our worship leaders as they prayerfully and thoughtfully think through even the songs we choose and how the Holy Spirit works through that to minister to the body. It is another example of God's heart for us. So, bless you with all the different uh, thoughts and emotions you have today. All right, so for our message, as you see by the first slide, we are in a series called Healthy Church, Biblical Church. Now, over the last while, Pastor Darren and I have been focusing on the area of discipleship, but we're going to get to some of these bigger issues later, where we're going to be talking about being a biblical church in terms of biblical leadership, biblical teaching, biblical giving, biblical membership, um, and other topics like that. And so some of those foundational things are coming. But with, in light of our congregation meeting next week, 
We also wanted to prepare you with some of our mission and vision as a church, our values. We're going to talk about that next week. But we've been intentionally speaking on four discipleship steps over the last week. And today we're going to kind of bring all of that together, I hope. So Pastor Darren and I are going to do a little bit of tag team. So I'm going to give us just a little bit of teaching on the process of discipleship. And then Darren's going to come up and give you some practical stuff, which I think will be fun. So you see here from this slide that we've been talking about our proposed mission, um, transformation in Jesus, and that we want to be a church that that's our focus. That's, that's the simple but hopefully rememberable and meaningful way we can describe who we are and where we're going. That we want to be a people, we want to be a church that, that's about transformation in our lives and it's about transformation through all that we do and all the ministries that we have. And so we've been talking a bit about that. And then we wanted to talk about being a disciple-making church, being a church that is all about discipleship. And so we've walked through each one of these discipleship steps that you see. Now, all of this is based on what what we've been talking about in terms of Jesus' two most great and famous statements. We call them the Great Commandment and the Great Commission. And in the great commandment, Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. The great command. That's pillar number one. And then pillar number two is the great commission, which is go into all the world and make disciples. Our mission, our calling. So those two foundational statements are why we exist, what our mission is, and why, how we accomplish all of that is being a disciple-making church. And so that's why we're taking so much time to talk about discipleship. Now let me remind you that in the Great Commission, Jesus didn't say, go and make converts. He said, go and make disciples. And there is such a huge difference. See, when you think of the word convert or conversion, that is about a change of mind moment or era for someone. So what we would often call a someone's salvation experience or conversion from one way of thinking to another. So conversion is important in terms of coming to faith in Christ. But Jesus didn't say, go and make converts. He said, go and make disciples. Because discipleship is a lifelong process. Discipleship is a journey a journey that Jesus invites us to personally and corporately as his church. Go and make disciples. So the reason that we're slowing down on this and having, yes, one more sermon yet on discipleship is because this is the key and the core to who we are as followers of Jesus and what we're called to be. So those are the, those are the four steps. I want to talk a little bit about the process of discipleship just to get us going today. And the whole idea of follow me, our discipleship journey. Now, discipleship and the idea of a rabbi or a teacher or a master training someone that follows them a disciple, that is not exclusively a Christian idea. That exists historically, and it was definitely huge in Judaism, which is where Christianity comes from. So if we go back to the time of Jesus, and we look at what it was like, what the whole discipleship process was like, what it was like to be a disciple, I wanted to share some of that with you from historical. Maybe some of you can't see the one part of the slide because it's too small, but when we talk about following Jesus, when Jesus says, follow me, he's not talking about Twitter, he means actually follow him. Anyway, if you can't read that, that's what he's saying to the guy on the bench. Anyway, let's talk a little bit about ancient discipleship. So, at the age of five, boys and girls at that time would begin their training with the rabbi. 
they would begin Torah school, or what was, would be literally translated house of the book. So it's kind of like when they went to school, we're going to the house of the book. And so these kids starting at five would begin to learn the Jewish Torah. Now Torah in our Bibles is the first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And so from age five to age 12, boys and girls would be immersed in the study of Torah. They would, they would learn writing, they would learn reading, and memorization. And this is kind of astounding to me, but from what I read in my research, some 12-year-olds actually memorized most of Torah. That's how incredible this learning process was. So if you can just, just imagine how difficult that would be. Now, the one story we have about Jesus being a boy is when he's 12 years old at his first Passover in Jerusalem. So the boys were allowed at the end of their Torah training to go to Passover in Jerusalem, and it was a big deal. And so when Jesus was there, and remember he astounded all the teachers and scholars because of how, how learned and wise he was already? Well, that's the process he was in. Now, so at that age of 12 or 13, now all the boys would begin to learn the family trade. So in, in Jesus' case, he would have started to learn from his father how to, be, how to be a carpenter. And then all of the girls would begin to learn the whole household management skills for, for their life. And they, they would start that all at that age. Now, at, at this point, some of the boys who were more exceptional students would be allowed to go on to the next level of education, which was called Midrash, which you, which you see there. And uh, this, this part of their discipleship journey or their school was from 13 to 18. So they would, continue in, they would continue in Torah, same kind of training, but now they added the other parts of Scripture, so the prophets and the writings, and they would be, begin to learn even deeper and more fully. And so they, that would be during, during those years of their life. Now, once they reached 18, there was the expectation in that culture that you would be thinking about getting married or your parents would have planned that for you already. But if you were a really exceptional student, you would be allowed to put off marriage and you could then at this point seek out a rabbi to become a disciple. So at 18, the, again, these really exceptional students that have had all of this training could now go and find a rabbi and that's most often how it happened. However, in rare occasions, a rabbi would choose a student and invite them to follow me. Consider that when you think of some of the stories of Jesus calling his disciples. So this third part of the discipleship journey went from 18 to 30. So there's lots of years where basically the disciple follows the rabbi around and does everything the rabbi does, and that was their discipleship journey. And then quite often, by the age of 30, then that disciple would become a rabbi, and then they would begin to disciple others. So that would have been the process common in their culture that they would have understood. So when Jesus said, go and make disciples, they understood it in a different and deeper and more, I guess, dynamic way than maybe we do. Just a quote that I, that I read about this, to be a disciple meant that you stood in awe of the rabbi, that you were totally committed to him, and most importantly, you were totally committed to becoming just like him. And I love this part. It is said that the disciples stuck so close to their rabbi that they became covered with the dust kicked up by the sandals. And I guess that would have been a, a saying in the Hebrews to sort of just emphasize the closeness of the rabbi-disciple relationship. So I wanted you to, to see that, and I want to look at a 
some of the scriptures of Jesus calling his disciples, because I think it's so important for us to demystify discipleship and actually see it in its reality and see it as a process. It's not just an event that one day you weren't and one day you were. It's actually a lifelong process, and I want you to see some of that in, in the life of Jesus. Now, when we read some of the Gospels and read about Jesus calling his disciples, it often seems like these people were just random strangers and that Jesus just went up to them and said, hey, I pick you, come be my disciple. And that may have happened to some of them, but I want to suggest to you from the scriptures today that for most of these people who were called to be a disciple of Jesus, there was a process and there was a relationship to their calling. So let's begin in uh, John chapter 1. John chapter 1, verse 35 to 42. It says this. The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. So anyway, this is John the Baptist, another rabbi who had disciples. So that's the context. John's there with his disciples. Verse 36. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, Look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, what do you want? They said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. Now this event happened very, very early. This is uh, the very, very beginning of Jesus's ministry and just when people are starting to get to know him and who he is. John the Baptist's ministry is still the prominent one and now John the Baptist is saying to his disciples, Actually, if you guys are looking for Messiah, for the one I've been preparing the way for, there he is. That's the one you got to follow. And so it's interesting to me that Jesus' first call to discipleship was simply, come and see. Come and see. And I think that's the beginning of the journey in discipleship for all of us. Jesus' invitation, come and hang out with me. Come and see who I am. Come and see what I value, how I live, what I want to show you and teach you. Come and see. Now, verse 43 says the very next day, the very next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Philip found Nathanael and told him, we have found one of the one Moses wrote about in the law and, and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? Nathaniel asked. Come and see, said Philip. So in the course of, the course of one day, Jesus' first call is come and see. And then a second call now, it's a little bit more involved. He says, follow me. Follow me. Now, this event is the very, very earliest first encounter that we read about that Jesus had with some of his disciples. This was probably in the fall or around September of the year 25. So now I'm going to take you to the, to the next scripture, which is many months later, actually. Let me get to the right page. So let's go to, now we'll go to Matthew. So Matthew chapter 4. Um, verses 18 to 22. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. 
or as many of us grew up with, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. That famous, famous line of Jesus. Now, it seems to us at first glance that this is maybe just the same event described a different way. But actually, this happens in April or in the spring of the following year. So there's been at least six or seven months of relationship building between Jesus and some of these disciples before the next phase of the call comes. So I just want you to understand the process and the relationship building that was happening. So these men, most of them fishermen, continued with their day jobs and, and doing their life, but also became followers or disciples of Jesus. Again, starting with just hanging out with him. Come and see. Have a relationship with me. See who I am. See how I do life. See what I value. And then Jesus ups the call. Come, follow me now. And they began to follow him. And now, months later, he ups the commitment again and the mission. And he says to them now, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Follow me, relationship, get to know me, all of that. But now I have a mission for you too. All of this following and learning is now going to be action. So I just, again, I want you to, to understand that there's a process going on here. In fact, when Jesus calls the 12 to be apostles, that's another year later when he actually, of his myriad of disciples, picks out the 12 and says, you're going to be apostles. And then, again, there's some debate with scholars, but it's likely at that point that they left their day jobs or left their fishing and then followed him full time. So again, for you to see the process of discipleship making. That discipleship and disciple making is a process. Now, next, next slide brings us back to our discipleship steps. Um, Darren, come up in a moment. But you see, see them there. Create community. Experience and model Jesus' love. Train one another to obedience and serve others and proclaim the gospel. So I want you to again to back up and remember the foundation, Right? Great commandment, the Great Commission. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, your neighbor as yourself. Great Commission, go into all the world and make disciples. The foundation of our purpose. And then, understanding now what I've taught about the process of discipleship and how Jesus led and called his disciples. And you know, for some of us, um, perhaps these two steps of create community and experience and model Jesus' love might be similar to Jesus saying, come and see. Just come and hang out with me, be with me, develop and build that relationship. And you know, when Jesus said, come and follow me, you know, he was following meant this, that third step about being trained, training one another, being in God's word, learning what Jesus commanded, learning how Jesus lived and walked, and then us learning that and putting that into practice and encouraging others around us to do that. You know, and then that last one is kind of like when Jesus said, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. That when we start to serve and proclaim the gospel as followers of Jesus. So it's just really important for us, for we as a church family, to not just have these be concepts. Nice little concepts that we should and might be good to do, but actually how can we live these out in our lives and as a church family? So that's what I've asked Pastor Darren to do. So Darren, come on up. And Darren's going to give us some good practical ideas. So bring it on, brother. All right. Here's where the rubber meets the road, and we start off with this statement. You need 
less of me and you need less of this. This is not it. This is not the primary form of discipleship. And this is what I mean. Look at Jesus' life. There's moments in his life when Jesus teaches hundreds, even thousands of people. He does it a few times throughout the gospel. More than that, he has a group of 100 people that we read about who are following him, town to town to town, and who are listening to him much more often. A closer relationship to the rabbi. Then closer than that, you have the chosen ones. Ones, 12 of them, who have been welcomed into an incredibly intimate relationship with Jesus. They're sharing personal moments with him. Parables, maybe teaching that is just with them. They're getting a deeper relationship with the rabbi. And then Jesus even seems to handpick out just a couple of them. You see Peter, you see James, you see John. And he says, come with me up the mountain. I'm going to be transformed in my glory on the top of the mountain. Come see even more personal. Discipleship is happening in all of those, all four of those different spots, but it looks different in all of those four different areas. So it does with church. So let's start with the big family. Often when we think about discipleship, we think we gotta bring someone to church. If we can just bring them to church, well, they will experience these four things, hopefully, as a big church family. How do we create community? Well, we have a potluck. How do we create community? We might go to the park and have a picnic. How do we create community as 200 people? It's challenging. It's not near as intimate, but we try. How do you experience Jesus' love? Well, we share testimonies. How do you model it? Well, you share the moments that you've had with Jesus. We read what we've learned about Jesus' love. We sing about Jesus' love together. These are moments of us reflecting on our experience and then modeling that experience to other people. Training one another to obedience. Well, if you're able to stay awake all the way through the sermon, we're teaching you how to be obedient, and then we're trying to demonstrate it for you. But it's hard. Why? Because in a big group, this kind of training is lecture-based. This isn't a discussion. I can't have you give me feedback, and I talk with you, and we do this for a couple hours. You have half an hour to listen to me or Don. So... We can do some training, but it's limited in its effectiveness. And serving together is also hard with this many people. We collect shoeboxes for Operation Christmas Child or items for the safe shelter, maybe food for the food bank. There's some volunteering we can do as a big church family, but it's challenging with hundreds of people. We try, but those are some of the ways that those four steps might look with everybody. But just like Jesus didn't always just teach thousands of people, he also had a closer group. So that, for you, might look like joining men's ministry or women's ministry or coming to youth group or coming to mops, groups like that. Now there's, say, 20 of you, 30 of you, smaller group. Discipleship in that context looks a little more intimate, doesn't it? Now talk about creating community. Now you can go to a restaurant and you can all sit together maybe. Or maybe you're still meeting at the church, but you all fit in one little room where you can visit together. You might go skating together with family ministry. The youth group might do a fun activity in the gym or might go somewhere in the city. Maybe we go sledding together. It's all about creating those close support systems and friendships. It's experiencing and modeling Jesus' love. Well, you're going to watch one of the young people in the youth group get baptized in a couple weeks, sharing a testimony 
at youth group or at mops or at men's or women's ministry or some of these groups, large groups, we're still trying to model Jesus' love and we're trying to draw people to experience Jesus' love. We're telling our experience with Jesus and then we're trying to love them like Jesus. That means including people. That means reaching out to people, not being clicky, making people feel welcome. If they don't feel welcome here in church with all of us, or if they don't feel welcome at youth group or at mops or at women's ministry, one of those groups, they're not really experiencing Jesus' love very well, are they? But we can't just be a friend group. We can't just meet together and play games and have snacks and go home. We turn to God's word. We are becoming obedient followers of the rabbi. So we train one another, word and deed. We read the word and then we live out the deeds. We're trying to educate one another. So you might see that there's spiritual teaching at youth group or at mops or some of these large group events. But again, it's not quite as much dialogue. It's a little bit more lecture. There's a little bit of discussion, but primarily at this group, you're probably listening to one person do the majority of the teaching. It's not quite as intimate. Imagine Jesus with 100 people. Those four steps can take place in any action team in the church, anyone. You can be the sound guy up in the sound booth. You can have five guys up there. You can create community. You can experience Jesus' love. You can even train one another to be obedient. And you can serve together, even up there. How about that, eh? But as you get to a smaller group, this looks even more intimate. So imagine you get welcomed into a small group, a Bible study, Five of you, six of you, seven of you, eight of you, right? A small group. Now when you're creating community, you're doing it in each other's homes. You're no longer in an impersonal space like here. You're in your living room and more intimate. You're creating community by doing these events together. You're inviting them over for supper, an intimate experience. You're beginning to share your life with one another. So to create community, you might do things together as families. You might even more personally share what's going on in your family with them, right? It's a deeper form of community building. What do small groups do to bind each other together? They spend time together, personally. How do you experience and model Jesus' love? Well, in a small group, you take care of one another. It's more practical, right? Someone in your small group is struggling. The rest of the small group supports them. You visit them, you call them, you make meals for them, whatever you need to do. They're welcome in your home, you go to their home. You're demonstrating Jesus' love. But you also need to share your own personal life with them. You need to open up about how you are doing, how you are struggling, how you are relying on Jesus. You're modeling it to them, and they're experiencing Jesus' love with you. So you're pointing them to Jesus, and you're bringing them into your own life, right? In those small groups, you can go even into more in-depth training. You can actually open the Bible with that group. You can all read together. You can discuss together more personally than sitting right here and listening to me. You can do Bible studies where everyone shares what, what are you reading in the Bible? What are you experiencing? What are you praying for right now? And everyone in that group can share. You're training one another to what it looks like to be obedient. That might be confession of sin, that might be accountability. Confessing sin might not always be appropriate in a group of 200. And accountability for me to hold all of you accountable to live out the way you've chosen to live is very difficult in 200 of us. But if we were in a group of five or six of us, they can hold you accountable. 
See how the discipleship becomes more intentional and more personal the smaller you go? How are you going to serve together? Well, now, as a small group, instead of just doing something that's less personal and hands-on, instead of just collecting items for OCC or for the food bank, something that's easier with hundreds of people, now there's five of you, ten of you. You're going together. You are going to the food bank. You are going to the youth drop-in center. You are going to the newcomer's welcome center. You are going out to your favorite, I don't know, you can go to the Bible camp. You can go places now. Mission trips, you can serve together, hands-on because there's fewer of you and you're able to do it together. So this discipleship is becoming more personal, just like Jesus and his 12 disciples, the smaller you get. But even more personal than that is the fourth example. Just two of you, three of you, mentoring. We call that mentoring each other or discipleship. What if somebody in the church came up to you and said, I need help. I need someone to mentor me. I said, okay, I can do that. What would that look like? Well, you have to create community, right? Step number one. You need to be friends with them. Because otherwise, if you just go right to sharing your testimony and taking them to the Bible, they might not trust you yet. They might not open up to you. There's no relationship. So where does the vulnerability come from? Do something together. When it's one-on-one, creating community, you can talk all the time. You can text each other all the time. You can go for coffee together. You can have each other over to your homes. You can go out for coffee somewhere. You can go for a walk. You can go fishing. You can do whatever you like. Just two of you, three of you, small, small group. Create some community and then take it to Jesus. Model and experience his love. Because just being friends isn't what we're called to be. We're called to be followers of the rabbi. So share your experience with Jesus. Here's where I've seen victory over sin. Here's where I've seen Jesus come through in my marriage. Here's where I've seen breakthrough with my kids and what Jesus has done in my life. Or here's where I'm struggling. Here's where I'm hurting. Here's where it's not going well, but I trust Jesus. All of a sudden, you're experiencing and modeling Jesus' love to each other. Compassion, care, grieving, all of these things we can do so intimately in this close relationship. Training one another to obedience. With two or three of you, the amount of depth that you can go into in your Bible reading is incredible. All of a sudden, you can start to talk every day about your Bible reading. With just two or three of you, you can sit for hours and talk about chapters of the Bible that you've been exploring and reading and learning from. You can go into in depth about what you've been praying for and how you want to be prayed for. You can confess sin and they can hold you accountable. Much more than 200 of us can when you're in a group of just two. And serving and proclaiming the gospel, all of a sudden the two of you can do incredible things. You can serve anywhere. You can be hands-on together proclaiming the gospel. You can find other people in church who need to be discipled and reach out to them. You can reach out to your friends in the community. You can reach out to different places to volunteer in our city. But do you see how it becomes so much more personal when it's just two of you rather than 200 of you? So here's the rub, and here's where I need to give you a little bit of a hard time. How many of you come to this moment and you think this is it? This is discipleship. Or you've been attending church for a long time and you think this is good enough. I'm part of the big group. I'm part of the 200. That's good enough. I'm going to tell you I don't think it is. 
I think you should step into the next layer. Don just talked about the different processes, right? Come and see and then follow and become a fisherman. Some of you are just in this group. This is the only group you're part of. You're just coming and seeing. But once you've chosen to follow him, the process, you should join a smaller group. Maybe mobs or women's ministry or men's ministry. Maybe one with just 20 or 30 people in it. But then maybe to follow him more deeply, you need to get into an even smaller group with some friends. And then maybe after experiencing discipleship in that smaller group, you become the fisher of men. Maybe you go get some more friends who are on the outside and bring those friends along with you. Maybe you mentor them one-on-one. To see the process, you start by seeing, and then you choose to follow, and then other people. So those are some examples of what these steps could look like, whether you're an action team leader, whether you're a small group leader, whether you're just mentoring one friend. You can do all of these things. Darren? All right. Now, while Darren was doing that, I had a couple thoughts. One was, that's awesome. I bet most of you are just like pumped and you're going, can we get started? (laughs) I know what I need to do now. This is awesome. And that's good. I hope a lot of you are feeling that way. The other thought I had, though, there's probably a lot of you feeling, oh, this might be hard. Do I really want to do this? It's okay if pastors get up there and talk about discipleship because they should probably do that for us. But now you're getting in our faces and telling us that, no, we all are supposed to disciple each other and be disciples and disciplers. And there's a cost. And so as we, as we come to communion a little bit, I want to I talk a little bit about the cost, the cost of discipleship. You know, we're, we're, in, in a minute we'll read, we'll read in John chapter 6, but let me give you just a bit of the context here. So in John, by John chapter 6, like Jesus' ministry is humming along, right? He's got lots of disciples, lots of people following him. You know what? They're loving it. Because you know what Jesus is doing? He's teaching and he's like got authority and they're going, this is awesome. We love hearing this teaching. And he's doing miracles. Like they're seeing blind people see and um, lame people healed. And it's like, this is exciting. This guy can teach with power. He heals people. And then Jesus starts feeding people, thousands of people miraculously. And, and, and his following's getting huge and people are loving it. Awesome teaching, free food, healing. Now, I mean, other than the healing and the maybe the not-so-great teaching, we kind of try to do that in church, but um, yeah. Anyway, there was lots of followers and lots of disciples because they were pretty pumped at Jesus and what his ministry was all about. But then, Jesus starts to give some hard teaching. He starts off by saying, I am the bread of life. That sounds pretty good. But then he gets into all this weird stuff about death, and, and then, he, then he makes this comment like, Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part of me. Ugh. People didn't like that, didn't like hearing that. Is this guy talking about cannibalism? What's he talking about here? This is weird. Well, that's the context. Jesus is teaching some hard stuff. So we come to verse 60. I'll get to verse 60. It says, on hearing it, many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? Aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, does this offend you? 
There's more going on in this passage, but I'm just going to stick to this idea today. But go down to verse 66. says, From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. You do not want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the twelve. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. And then Jesus replied, Have I not chosen you, the twelve? A few weeks ago, I was here on the weekend, and so had the opportunity to go to our adult Sunday school class. So where's Dwayne? Well done, Dwayne. If you, if you have not checked out our adult Sunday school class yet, it's awesome. Dwayne leads it well. There's good discussion there. It's a good one of those, like, smaller type groups that Darren was talking about. Well, anyway, they, in that class, they've been listening to a speaker named Andy Stanley, and uh, they listen to some of that, and then they have a discussion. Anyway, when I was there, Andy Stanley talked about this passage. So maybe some of you that were there that morning might remember, but it really challenged me. The question, part of the, the question was, if I remember what Andy Stanley was talking about, was what was behind Peter's response? Right? So all these disciples are discouraged now. The hip happening Jesus movement seems to be in trouble because people are deserting. And Jesus is teaching some really weird stuff that people aren't liking. And then Jesus asks the question, do you guys want to leave too? And then Peter says, where else would we go? Now the question is, what do you think Peter's, where do you think Peter's response comes from? So is this a response of great faith? Is this a response of desperation? I'm not sure. Now, he does declare that we've come to know where else would we go? We still believe you're the Messiah. None of what Jesus, like so much of what Jesus is starting to do is confusing them and they're not sure where this whole thing's going. So now how about you? When we talk about let's be a disciple-making church, let's be disciples of Jesus and let's see our church grow and become healthy by us being disciple-makers. So when you hear that challenge, when you, when you consider what this might all mean, what the cost of this might be, how do, how do we respond to that, that same question? Does this just seem too hard? Does this just seem like there's, you're asking too much of us? Why don't you pastors get busy and you elders get busy and do more discipling around here? Okay, maybe we need to. But maybe some of you are struggling because it's like, this seems too hard. So I wanted to just be honest about this with you. Because I think if that's, if that's your honest feeling inside, I don't want you to feel condemned. I certainly don't want you to feel scolded. That's the last thing I hate that us pastors can do too often. But I do want you to know that there's a cost here. And that we have to come to the rabbi and it's not just going to be this wonderful journey of blessings and great growth ahead. But there's going to be commitment. And there's going to be choices and sacrifices 
and all kinds of things to walk in discipleship. And we just have to all ask ourselves a really hard question. And if Jesus looks us in the eye and says, are you going to leave too? Do you want to give up too? Boy, I see Jesus looking at me and asking that all the time. And you know, I just will be really vulnerable and honest with you. There's often times that I get really discouraged and I just want to complain and say, God, this is too hard. The church is too hard to turn around. The Christian movement is too far gone to be saved. You know, as if I could do it anyway. That's the ridiculous part of it. But anyway, I have those complaints and I have those doubts and I, I, I can see Jesus looking at me and going, are you going to give up too, Don? Oh, Lord, please no. <laughs> in my weakness, be strong. Can you join me in that? He's not asking us to be rah, 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 pumped. We can do this. No, we can't. But can we trust the power of the Holy Spirit? Can we in humility say, Lord, in my weakness be strong? And can we say, being a disciple and having this transformational message of Jesus is so awesome and so amazing because of how it's transformed my life and people that I love that maybe that would want to motivate me to truly be a disciple and see this message transform others? Could that be our motivation? Even with some fear, even with it, like Peter, can we say it with some faith? Where else would I go? And you know, I so often hear myself saying that when I'm discouraged and want to quit. It's too hard. And then I look back at Jesus and I say, where else would I go? You have the words of life. Who else would I follow? Who else is true? Who else is my God? And so I hope and pray together that we can count the cost, but that we can also with boldness follow the heels of our rabbi, even if we get some dust kicked up in our face, and follow him together. So our response this morning is going to be coming to the table. And you know, I've, I've actually never led communion from the context of John chapter 6. What a horrible way I feel to lead communion by using the verse, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part of me. What kind of a statement is that? Why on earth would Jesus say that? I don't think he was promoting cannibalism, just in case you're wondering. But why did Jesus say that? You know, I mean, I've thought about it a lot, and if this was a group discussion, I'd love to have the discussion. So many so many, so much meaning behind what he's trying to say, both historically and in the moment. But you know, to simplify it and kind of bottom line it, I think basically what he's saying is, if you truly want to follow me, if you truly want to be my disciple, you got to be all in. No more empty carbs. It's just eat me. That's really what he's saying. Are we wanting to combine everything else in our life, all of the compromises, or are we all in? And that's, that's, a, that's another really tough call. But that's what Jesus meant. 
Eating his flesh and drinking his blood, meaning that all of our dependence, all of our sustenance, everything we are is because of us taking in Jesus. And so as we come to the table today, the bread symbolizes his flesh. The cup, the juice, symbolizes his blood. We take it in. And the question today is, are we all in? So yeah, I invite you to the table today to remember, to worship, wonderful things to do. But let our response today be, are we all in? Do we want to follow the rabbi and have his life, the life flowing through his veins, the life of his body given for us? Are we all in? Is he our life? So with that, I'll invite Pastor Darren and the worship team to come and join me. I'll ask Darren to do the elements. So we talked about Jesus being at Passover when he was 12 years old, his first one. And then he would have gone to Passover every year. And now, in his last year of human life, he has a very special last Passover with his disciples. And yet, being Jesus, he goes off script. And he creates what we now call communion or the Lord's Supper. And so at that last Passover, the scripture tells us that Jesus took the bread and he broke it. And he passed it out to them. And he said, this is my body given to you. Eat my flesh. They might have remembered. I'm pretending they did today. But he said, this is my body given to you. Do this in remembrance of me. And later in the meal, he took the cup. He poured it for each of them. And he said, this is the new covenant in my blood given to you, shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. It's the new plan, the new covenant, forgiveness and life in Jesus. That's why we could come and celebrate, even as we eat the flesh and drink the blood of the rabbi, of the master. So I'm going to ask Darren to just pray a blessing over the elements. And then the worship team is going to begin to uh, worship and you can all come to either one of these stations and you'll be served here. Just so you know, all of the bread is gluten-free, so hopefully everyone can come forward. So yeah, um, those who are serving, come to your stations. Darren, lead us in prayer. Father in heaven, thank you for the sacrifice of your son Jesus. Thank you that you saw fit to sacrifice your one and your only, your beloved, so that I could experience life. Thank you, Jesus, that you've called me into discipleship and you've called us into discipleship. You've called us to abandon everything else and to follow you. You've asked us to take part of your body for you to be the one that sustains us and fills us with life and to find life nowhere else outside of you. So Lord, would this be a transformative moment for us? 
would we consider what it looks like to follow you? Would you, Lord, through your Holy Spirit, lay on our hearts conviction that this is a moment where we need to step deeper into following you? If it's time for us to commit to the rabbi to lay down our lives, to leave our nets and our boats behind, and to join in discipleship. And if it is, Father, would you show that to us as we come forward to celebrate and remember the lamb whose blood was shed, covering the doorposts of our lives so that death would pass over and we would experience brand new life. Lord, thank you for the bread and thank you for the cup. Thank you for your broken body. Thank you for your new covenant and your promise. Thank you for brand new life. And thank you that one day we're coming home. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.